Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Eddie Jones. He's the head coach of England's rugby union team. Eddie has played for Australia and coached the South Africa, Australia, Japan, and England's national teams. After decades at the peak of elite sport, he's picked up a tip or two about how to lead a team and deal with setbacks. And today we get to go through his biggest lessons for elite leadership. Expect to learn the five values that every leader needs to have, Eddie's non-negotiables for making him the best leader he can be, why he bought a samurai sword to attack some fruit with, his tips on how to make a good first impression, how to deal with pressure, how he copes with media scrutiny, and much more. This is a very interesting side of Eddie Jones. If you have seen him in a press conference, he can be uh, prickly, to say the least, and yet, this conversation, he's really warm. You see a side of him that's coming through now that's much more holistic, that's more well-rounded. It's obvious that he's really assessing his own performance, his coaching staff's performance, and the players with such a level of granularity. Uh, if this is what a sport that only 20 years ago was, even the pros were basically amateurs, if this is the pace at which it can develop, and become sophisticated, uh, it's going to be amazing. The next World Cup, Rugby World Cup, is in 2023, and uh, I would be very concerned if I was any team going up against a coach who is putting this much effort into covering all of the bases. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed. So head to your podcast app, press the subscribe button. It is the only way that you can ensure that you will never miss an episode every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday when they go up, and it supports the show and it makes me very happy. So go and do it. I thank you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash 
modern wisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones, welcome to the show. Uh, nice to be here, mate. Really glad to have you here. So why write a book on leadership at all? Do you want the world to have better leaders in it, or are you trying to synthesize what you learned? What was the compulsion to do it? Well, uh, on the back of the last book, Macmillan approached me during the lockdown to do a book on leadership, and I'd always thought um, there was a couple of books when I was growing up as a coach, uh, learning my trade that I really appreciated the help I got from. One was from Pat Riley, the LA Lakers, uh, Winner Within, and the other one was Bill Walsh from the San Francisco 49ers, which I think is called Winning Edge. And I thought, well, maybe if I can put down some of the thoughts that I've had in, in my career, it might help some young aspiring coach coming through to, to help them in, the, in their difficult way of learning how to be a coach. Why do you think it is such a difficulty? Why is leadership such a, a fine skill to attune? Uh, well, I think, you know, coaching, as, as I do for a living, um, it appears easy, but it's such a complex, convoluted, um, ever-demanding profession where you're dealing with you know, young athletes who increasingly want to be more individual, uh, which is the way the world is, and you're trying to put them together into one team and, and do the same thing in a in a period of time and 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 extract from them effort that they don't normally want to give. Does that suggest that it's becoming a bit more difficult to be a leader or be a coach now? It sounds like people are becoming more individualistic, which is making coordination more challenging. Uh, look, I don't think it's become more difficult. I, I just think it's there's more parts to it now. Um, you have to take into consideration a lot more things than previously you had to. Just for instance, you know, within coaching a team, you have to take a lot of consideration into the, the learning environment we, which you create for the players. Yeah, whereas previously, you know, if you look back 20 or 30 years ago, you could stand at the front of the room and say, this is what we're going to do, and everyone would say, well, how much, how much, how hard do you want us to do it, coach? And now you have to explain why you have to do it you have to make sure you have the right number of messages. You have to have the messages in the right way. You have to have the right uh, right sort of visual presentation for the players. So all of that's become become more challenging um, to, to extract the maximum effort from the players. How do you balance that need for team members to listen to your instructions but them to also come up with their own solutions. I think you've got a story in the book about when you presented one of the players with sort of a, here's a problem, you need to fix it, but also the players still need to listen to your words. How do you find that balance? Yeah, well, increasingly, Chris, it's, it's more about the players finding their own solutions. I think coaches are more facilitators now, and what, what we need to be really good at, though, is, is setting the standards of performance and making those uh, performance standards very clear for everyone, but then guiding the player to where they need to go to achieve those standards rather than commanding the players to do it. Mm, that's interesting. What or when do you think that you're at your best? Are you at your absolute best now? 
as a leader? Uh, well, I think you never get there, mate. I think you're always chasing it. It's like that elusive dream. It's that that pie in the sky type thing where you're always trying to become a better a, be, a better coach and a better leader. You know, we had uh, Roy Hodgson come and visit us uh, during the last Six Nations, and yeah, you know, Roy's 72. He's coached, I think, four different countries, uh, most of the top football clubs in the world, and. Yeah, his opening statement was, oh, boys, I'm still trying to work out how to be a good catch. And I think that's so true, that you're always chasing to be a little bit better because, you know, there, there is no finite state in sport and there is no finite state in any high-performance organisation. Yeah, there's always what's coming next, who's, who's chasing you, who's trying to do a little bit better than you. What are the values of a good leader to you? You break that down into a sort of a big five. How do you go through courage, hard work, discipline, iron will, and curiosity? Uh, well, I think all of those things are important, and they're all important at various times. I think, yeah, as, I, as I spoke about in the book, there's a cycle of performance that you need to go through where you need to build up the team. And particularly at the start when you take over a team, I think you need a lot of courage to come up with a vision that's probably um, higher than the players have ever wanted to achieve. And then you've got to sell that vision to the players. Um, you've got to make sure that they're prepared to work hard to to achieve that vision. And that message has got to be fresh all the time because you know the more you can you can repeat the message, the more chance you've got people are believing it. You know that's the one thing that's that's very consistent. We were lucky enough uh, recently to get Doug Lemoff in, um, who's uh, a school teacher in the USA. Um, and he started a, a a number of schools called Uncommon Schools, and he's basically set up schools in the most underprivileged areas in in the cities of America, and created this fantastic learning environment where kids are doing significantly better than the norms for their areas. So we got him in to to create uh, to get the teach to get our coaches to learn more about being better teachers rather than just being coaches because that's what it is now. It's, it's teaching the players, you know, guiding them, sometimes telling them and most of the time trying to create the environment for them to learn by themselves. Is there an insight that was surprising to you when learning what he does or was there something that you realised that you were doing incorrectly? Uh, well, it's, it's not as as severe as that but what it is it's the it's the nuances of getting the message through like he did this presentation on rugby and he doesn't know he doesn't know anything about rugby but he did this presentation and our coaching sat there sat our coaching team sat there in awe about his ability to to capture the information succinctly put it into a way that that most people can remember it. Um, so it's that understanding of how the brain operates, understanding then how you, how you create that, that right message for the players so they're able to remember what you're doing. And, and just some of the things, you know, like if you want the team to do a tactical, if you want a team to follow a tactical area of the game, the need to practice that at least four times during the week, the brain the brain won't take that in unless you do it four times. And if it's more of a message, if you haven't repeated that message at least seven times during the week, the chances, again, of the players being able to remember that message is is, is uh, not great. So the so value... Those, 
just those little things are really important. Yeah, the value of repetition from someone who doesn't have a clue about rugby but was able to come over and give people who've spent their entire lives doing rugby some new news. Yeah, and a survey of repetition without having repetition. Yeah, that's the important thing because if we keep repeating the same message and you keep saying it the same way, people get bored of it. You know, and, and particularly in today's society where you know, if you haven't got a new something new on your podcast, people don't come back to it, do they? You know, because there's always something new that they can go to. You look at, you know, soft drinks or drinks in the in the shops now. Like 30 years ago, you had Fanta, Coke, lemonade and water probably. And now you've got, you know, each week there's a new flavour, a new sparkling, you know, lemon, yuzu, whatever it is, juice coming out because people want new things. And it's the same when you're giving messages to players now. If you keep saying the same thing, uh, they'll they'll they won't listen to you. So you've got to present the same message in a number of different ways. So it's it's that idea of having repetition without repetition. Same as coaching on the field. You know, the importance of fundamentals in any of the games we play, whether it be football, whether it be American football, whether it be rugby union, the fundamentals are the are the bit that gives you the beauty of the game. Um, but young players don't want to do the endless drills of passing the ball without thinking. So you've got to be able to create those drills that are repetition, but at the same time the players think that they're doing something new all the time. So there's a, an element of novelty that delivers the same message that you've wanted to get across to them? Yeah. 100%, mate. Summed it up beautifully. And you, am I right in saying that you said for physical activities you're looking at four times a week and for what does messages mean? Is that more kind of like philosophies and theories seven times within a yeah, week? Yeah, or the message about about how we're going to play, just that that key tactical message that you want to stick in their head. If you're not repeating that seven times during the week, the chances of the players remembering that is uh, is not great. That's interesting. I wonder whether I wonder whether the immersive element that you get when players turn professional or when they go to an international stage, I'm wondering how much more of a benefit those players are seeing because they're living and breathing it. Think about the step change between a club-level player who maybe is only with his team, what, once or twice during the week and then again on game day. And then as this perhaps young player works up and up, not only does he get better, but his ability to get better increases so much more because he's starting to hit this critical mass of messaging opportunities with the coaching staff that he works with. Yeah, and I also think it's the ability to learn and and yeah, you see that players who go from one level to the to the next, um, their ability to learn quickly is is one of the most distinguishing factors. Like I know in English cricket they had a theory that if a player went from county to test cricket and within the first three innings of test cricket he wasn't able to get fifty, the chances of him adapting and being a really good player is is quite quite low, um, and I think that's so true in most sports. You see, when a young player goes up to the next level, they, if they adapt really quickly, and they, and that's their ability to learn, if they are able to do that, their chances of being a successful players far higher than the, the player who's slow to adapt. That's interesting. So it's like a uh, like a stress test at very very high levels of pressure. This person's put into a new environment, new, t- new stress is put upon them. How do they adapt and grow and learn? And that adaptability 
is um, a, a scalable insight that works out how effective they're going to be over time. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the other part of that is that they've got to have an open mindset. You know, they've got to be open to learning, and they've got to have an element of curiosity, and they've also got to be humble, mate, because, you know, the hard thing for, for players particularly is to understand sometimes they think they've made it, they've got to the next level, so why do I have to improve now? And if you're humble, you always want to improve, and you see with the really great players, you know, you look at Federer, yeah, you know, he's he's what he's forty odd now, and he's still got a tennis coach because he wants to improve. And every time he comes back for a new season, he's got a new stroke or a variation of his stroke. Imagine if like every team sport player had that approach to their game, that every off season they develop a new part of their game by themselves and come back with a new string to their bow. And the and the really good players do that, and not so good players think they've made it, and they and they don't think they've got to keep improving. Is there a tension between the hard work and the iron will and the discipline and the curiosity that those first three are to do with kind of drilling and iterating on what you already do and the curiosity is on growing? So you kind of have this exploit and then this explore element that there's two things going on. Is there a, is there a tension that you find between those? Yeah, oh, it's, a, it's a constant battle, mate. The way you've said it is, is right. And there's this constant battle in terms of coaching, whether you're supporting or challenging the player. So you've always got this, and with your environment, you've got the constant battle or tension between being comfortable, because you need them to be comfortable sometimes. You know, if you keep pushing all the time, um, they get too uncomfortable, but then when they, they start sitting comfortably on their chair, then you've got to make sure you, you make them a bit more uncomfortable. So, you know, in terms of high performance, environment that's one of the things you're constantly appraising that support challenge that that comfortable uncomfortable set that uh sitting and moving you're always appraising where you need to be and trying to find the right way to keep moving forward how do you avoid burnout both for yourself and for the players i know that you're someone who in the past has uh how would you say pushed the limits of this um to its to up towards its uh, absolute peak. Yeah, well, well, I think the first thing is you've got to keep loving it. You know, if you love, if you really love something, it means a lot to you. you. Don't get burnt out because the passion's there, the desire's there, the enthusiasm there, and it's you know I never feel like I've I'm doing a job. I always feel like I'm doing something I love doing, um, and and that's why I'm still able to catch it at sixty one um, because it's not a job to me. It's it's something I love doing. Um, and I think the mistake I made when I was a younger coach was that I expected everyone else, players and, and assistant coaches, to have that same desire to, to want to be like that all the time. But as I've got older and got more experience, I've, I've understood that you know, everyone's got their own way of doing it and sometimes it might have manifest itself in this strong desire, but they've still got the desire there. So... It's being more having more empathy about the way other people do their job. It wouldn't work for everyone to have your approach either, right? Let's say that you are the uh, bazooka or you're the hammer that sees everything as a nail. You don't need that. Sometimes you need other people that are more creative, that are more relaxed. I know that you've got a lot of women that are contributing as parts of your coaching staff now that also add a total different perspective into this too. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the the recent period of time has shown how important diversity is in life. You know, not that anyone 
thought it wasn't, but I think that's really reinforced. And I think in the sporting environment, it's become even more important to understand how important diversity is and, and, and that and that respect's almost more important than harmony in a, a team organisation, I think. Having the respect of diversity, respect of different opinions, respect of people's backgrounds, respect of gender, all of that, all of that is just so important to an environment now. Well, the bottom line is it's not diversity for diversity's sake either. The reason that it works is that you get an effective outcome, that you have a team that performs better, that's more effective. Oh, 100%, because everyone thinks the same way, everyone behaves the same way. You, know, you, you don't get any new thoughts. You don't get any creative conflict. You need to have that diversity to keep the, keep the ball moving. Mm. Talk to me about when you arrived at England in 2015 then. How do you begin changing the direction of a team when you're a brand new leader? You're this fresh behind the face sort of guy that no one has an existing relationship with, but many people may have preconceived ideas about. Where do you go? Uh, well, I probably learnt, learnt the most. Uh, if I just tell a little story about how I approached it. Uh, being a casual teacher or being a supply teacher, as they call it in England. Uh, I did that for the first couple of years when I became a teacher because there wasn't any full-time jobs. So I'd go to a school, and I, I used to go to my old school, and and the classes you got were always the tough classes because teachers don't take days off when they've got the top students. They take the days off when they, they've got the, the, the rat bag. So I'd, I'd have the bottom bottom classes of year nine boys, you know, when hormones are pumping through their bodies, they, they know everything, they don't want to be told anything by a teacher. And I, I quickly learn out, you know, when you have those guys maybe four or five times a day um you've got to quickly work out right who's who's going to who's going to be difficult for you and you have to find some way to some way to establish a relationship who's going to help you and again you have to find a relationship with them. and then you have to make the the content of your lesson interesting that that makes them want to be part of the lesson so when you go to a new team it's no different you know you've got to try to find the players who you think you need, but maybe going to be difficult, and find a way to establish a relationship quickly with them. Uh, work out the players who are going to be with you from the start because they're driven. Uh, make sure they understand your philosophy and and where you want to go, and then create a training program that's interesting that makes the players want to be there. Um, and so you do that process, you know, and when you're with the England side, you've got five days to do that before you play a game. So it's, you know, you've got to get on your horse and you've got to do it quickly. Talk to me about how you um, bridge the gap between the difficult ones and how you encourage and utilise the motivation of the driven ones. Have you got any strategies around how you approach that? Yeah, well, you've got to, you've got to, for the difficult ones, the difficult ones are difficult usually for a reason. They're either... They're either really high-performing players, which most of them are, or they're players you've got to get rid of. So you quickly got to make a you, – you know if they're high-performing players, they're difficult for a reason. So you've got to try to find out what they really value, um, what drives them. Like, yeah, I think I, I've spoken before about James Haskell. He's always been this muscular player, but never really performed for England. But I've met him a few times socially before that in japan and i knew that you know he wanted to be loved so you know some of the most overtly 
ostentatious, out there type players are the players who are the most insecure. So I immediately um, had a conversation with him and said, mate, you're going to be so important for this team. Yeah, you're likely to be our starting seven for, for the Six Nations. So you do these one or two things for me, you're going to be there. And that immediately made him feel good. So he wanted to be part of the team. Uh, then for the other guys, it's it's giving them roles they think are, is going to improve their rugby. So you're looking to each player quickly to establish a personal relationship, trying to understand what what's important value for them in terms of their sport and in terms of their endeavour, and then and then create that link with them. So with the difficult ones, you're looking to either um, bridge that gap or get rid. And with the guys who are driven, you're trying to give them responsibility that allows them to take ownership and move forward. Yeah, and also show them how much you care about them. Like the big thing about about any team is that the players want to know two things from the coach. Firstly, that they can improve them, and secondly, that they care about them. So you've got to you've got to have the knowledge of rugby, particularly for those driven guys. They, they want to know that you've got the knowledge to take the team going forward because they want to be part of a successful team. So you've got to quickly assess in the team. And I think you see this in football all the time where coaches are able to come in or managers are able to come in in a short period of time and turn the team around. They're able to work out quickly how they can improve the team and therefore how they can improve the individual players' chances of being successful. Um, so you've got to work out what that is very, very quickly. And and for England, it was quite easy because they've always been a strong defensive and set-piece team. So I just focused on what they were good at previously and then gave them a picture of where we could go potentially. It's interesting as a non-professional athlete looking at these pros because from our perspective, these guys just look like titan athletic titans right just these immovable objects that go on the pitch and completely work to what the tactics say that they're supposed to do but you're right the only reason that a manager or a coach is able to step into a team whether it be football or rugby and make a quick change they're not changing the skills of the players the players haven't acquired some new move or something within the space of one day or one week that this coach has been there it's about the communication it's about how they're framing that player's role it's about how they're talking to them it's about making them feel comfortable confident secure within their position within the team and giving them responsibility to drive them forward i never thought of it like that before but it makes so much sense that's the only way you could turn something around that quickly yeah no 100 percent. well you look at uh, i yeah, it's one of the most interesting things for me is is watching how other coaches operate and having seen uh, Rannick come into Manchester United. Yeah, every time he talks, he's very clear about what he wants. Like, this is how the team's going to play. Uh, we mightn't play like that now, but this is where we're going. Um, he wants players with a strong mentality. It uh, doesn't matter how talented they are, they've got a strong mentality. And you can see, you know, every time he talks to a media conference, he's talking to his players. So he's reinforcing, you know, we said about reinforcing the messages. He's constantly reinforcing the messages he, he'd be telling him within the, in the team room. He's saying that to the media. So they're hearing that, right? So we know what this bloke wants. Uh, for us to be successful, if we're going to do this, We've got to do these things. And at the same time, I'm sure he gives them enough freedom to to uh, to impose their own personality on the team. I reckon that's another important point that, you know, a team generally wants 
wants to be like the personality of the coach. Um, but at the same time, the coach's skill is being able to to not not um, delete the player's personality from from that. So you want the players to be themselves, but you want to be part of a group that plays like the coach wants them to play, so they get on the same page. But at the same time, for the players to be able to have be their own personality. You see this in businesses as well, right? The owner or the director or the CEO or whatever. The culture is just a trickle-down little microcosm of whatever it is that they do in any case. You see elements of their personality borne out in the company culture. It is just like a, a little projection of how that person operates. Yeah, 100%. And then the individuals are able to add to that, so they're continuing adding. Like We had a sports site come in between 2018 and 2020 for the England side, and, and one, of, one of her great quotes was that, Remember, every conversation you have with a player or with a staff member, you're either adding to the business or you're taking away from the business. You never, no conversation is neutral. And it's so, so right that every conversation you have, whether it be passing a guy in the hallway, you can either add to the team business that what, that day or take away from the team business. And your ability to, to keep adding to the business is the key thing. Talking about James Haskell, you said that he was an important part of uh, like lightening the dressing room up, being kind of the, the life of the party, so to speak. Are there some other support systems that a leader needs that might not be so obvious at first? You, know, you wouldn't think that in a high-performing sports team that having a life of the party or someone that lightens the load would be in there, but it seems like it was quite an important role. Uh, mate, it's really important. And again, it's that diversity of character that you need. So you not only need that in the players, but you also need a staff member that's able to do that. So we had a guy called Scott Wiseman who coached with me in Japan. I brought him over to England for the last two years. Like he was a sort of bloke, like honestly, he's 50 now and he's still got the same same pair of board shorts he had when he was when he was 21, you know. And they tell this story about New South Wales, they're driving to training and they see this guy in the board shorts on a skateboard, you know, with his cap backwards, pushing along on his skateboard, going to training. And this is, the, you know, one of the most important assistant coaches. So having a guy like that who's good at his, good at his coaching but also can add a bit of frivolity, a bit of humour. Like, humour is such an important thing in a sports environment um, or any competitive environment that you have that balance between seriousness of the job and that humour to, to get people to feel good about themselves. It's funny to think that a lot of... A lot of bad leaders that I've spent time with, they want other members of the team to be exactly like them. But as you've said, we're not going to get that diversity through that way. And especially whatever it is that you have, having more of that isn't what you need. It's more of the things that you don't have that are then going to spread out that creativity. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right, Chris. And I think that the really important thing there is as a leader or as a head coach, you need to know yourself. You know, because when we're when we're a young coach coming through, yeah, you know, we think we know everything and and we think we can do everything. And the longer you coach, the more you realise know your strengths. Coach would coach to your strengths, and then bring other people in that complement, supplement, and add add to the team environment. I'm fascinated by the idea that the coach can use opportunities with the press as a chance to communicate to the players. I think that that, I mean, you've had 
some pretty advanced media strategies over the last few years. The way that you went out and attacked the All Blacks in advance of your game with them, and then there was the sort of the V formation that you guys formed yeah. around the hacker. Can you explain sort of the plan behind that that whole week? Yeah, well, New Zealand, New Zealand are the darlings of world rugby. You know, everyone loves them, um, and they should because they're the most successful team in the world. So they've got, and they've got this mystique about them with the black jersey, doing the haka, and having lived in Japan, I know how much the Japanese love them. Um, so with uh, a guy that's worked with me for twenty years now, David Prembrake, who's one of the brightest people I know. Uh, he always at the start of the week will send me some lines about where we think we should go. So firstly, we wanted to put the New Zealand media on call that uh, we wanted them to stir stir them up a bit. Um, so they'd ask Han- Steve Hansen, who was the head coach, some questions. So we, we came up with that line of they're just fans with keyboards to stir that up a bit. And then we wanted to wanted to make sure that New Zealand understood we were coming after them. So we used we used some language at the start of the week about how we're going to chase them down the street and all these these sort of things. And the busiest person in the New Zealand camp would be the sports psychologist who was, you know, well-renowned and one of the most successful. And then we had this idea, right, that's, that's all well and good, but once we get to the ground and they start the haka, the whole crowd gets enchanted by them. Um, and then they become the crowd supports them. Um, so what we wanted to try to do was get the crowd to think about something else. So came up with this idea that that we'd encircle the the haka, so we'd make a circle around it. But that was the coach's idea. So I gave it to Owen Farrell, the captain, and I said, "Mate, this is my idea uh, or our idea." But then you do you talk to the team and you do what you think's right. So they came up with the idea that they'd make a, a V um, and stay within the distance they were supposed to stay, which I think you're not allowed over the halfway line. But unfortunately, uh, we've got a bloke called Joe Marley who doesn't tend to listen to to most people, and he kept going. So we ended up with this you know this quite confrontational V, and and you could hear the buzz in the crowd, you know. All of a sudden, well, this is not the. We're not here to just watch the All Blacks. This is a this is a proper game, and it's on. Um, so we we got that right approach. But yeah, you do that in other games, and it doesn't work, and you look like an idiot, mate. <laughs> uh, the video, if anyone wants to go and watch it on YouTube, you can see the referee or the linesman sort of trying to pull Joe Marler back and saying, <laughs> "No, no, you can't. You've, you're on this half of the pitch. You need to be in your half. The game hasn't even begun yet." <laughs> But again, you know that's that's a good example of diversity because Joe Marler, like he's completely his own man. Own man. Um, Is he one of the most unique the, players that you've coached? Hundred percent, mate. But one of the best players I've coached too. Like great team man, really respected within the team. But yeah, you know, he's got his own way. He wants to be portrayed, and and we give him the freedom to do that. And as a result, he he keeps wanting to play for England. Like he's retired two or three times. <laughs> yeah, he's got five kids under ten at home, so he's got plenty to do at home. Um, but he's a, he's a great fella, great fella. He's so entertaining to watch. You know, he's it doesn't yeah, make no, it doesn't surprise me that he's a fan favorite. And then when you find out that he's like a player favorite too, I guess Haskell's probably something yeah. similar, right? Like just that pure yeah. character. It's um, yeah. 
it sets the it, it, and it gets you have to forget or people sometimes forget when we talk about high performance that although sport is about winning and about performing effectively it is an entertainment i know that you've got some problems at the moment to do with the ball in ball out of play um time which yeah. although partly that's to do with how the game's played and the dynamic it's also to do with how enjoyable it is to watch so if you've got a character on the pitch with his crazy hair and his like mad after match interviews and this things that the referee's mic picks up as he's like Joe Marler's giving the referee a slap on the ass or whatever it might be like that's that kind of makes for a spectacle that people want to watch yeah and it goes back again you, you know you don't want to be annulling the the players personality you want them to have their personality and and the crowds want to see that they want to see players with personality and yeah you know, as professional sports got tighter and tighter uh, particularly I think it's been harder for players to to be their own person because it's, you know, the academies want players who behave themselves. They don't want players who are, are difficult, who, you know, want to do their own thing. So those players have to work really hard now to come through. Is there almost a sense of deprogramming that when they get to the top level, that you go from being a, a wild young kid, you need to show to the academy usually, you know, if you've got some academy coach, my housemate's the ex-physio of the junior academy at Falcons and now the junior first team. And I think that... You know, they, they want kids that show that they can listen to discipline. They want kids that can do the thing. But then you get to the top flight and actually you're now trying to bring, you're almost trying to deprogram that. You're trying to bring some of that individuality back out again. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a constant battle um, that we've got that, that we want players, particularly I think in the media, to be their, their own selves. We, yeah, Obviously, there's a team line we want them to follow, but we want them to be able to tell stories. We want them to be able to entertain the the people who who pay. You know, ultimately, the crowds pay for for the players to play the game, and and they need to be able to entertain. Um, yeah, I think that's just such an important part of sport going forward. And you see, the American teams are probably best at doing it, aren't they? You know, I remember seeing that Cam Newton for um, I think he played for Carolina. Panthers, you know, a real character, the way he used to dress coming to press conferences. And people remember that. Did you watch uh, The Last Dance, Save the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan yes. documentary on Netflix? Yeah. What were your thoughts about that? Oh, well, again, I reckon that's a great example of a, a, a coach knowing what the team needed. Like when Rodman, having Rodman there with Pippen and Jordan, he had the right balance in the team. When it was when Jordan was out and there was just Pip, Pippen and and Rodman, Rodman's force within the team was probably too strong, and there wasn't enough ballast in the senior player group to 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 manage his idiosyncrasies. Because if they were able to manage it, he was a force for the team. But if they weren't able to manage it, then he became a negative force for the team. So I thought that the way Jackson was able to manage that, and you, and you didn't hear much from Jackson in the in the in the series but you could see his influence on the team and 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 the the way the other bit i really liked was that you know in nba it looks like in the lead up to the finals it's all about attack but as soon as you get to the finals it's all about defense which is is the same in most sports you know what do you, you mean by that to, you be a good attacking team to get to the finals but to win the finals you've got to be a good defensive team that's interesting I wouldn't have thought that that would be the case. 
Yeah, well, that the thing that stood out to me, how hard they played in defence in the finals. Like, Jordan in the finals, his defence was incredible. And you think that you're going to see the same, or you do see the same pattern come across into rugby as well? Oh, 100%, mate, so clear. Because they're tight games, you know, and they're 50-50 games, so the team that generally makes the less errors wins. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting one. So what about your habits for leadership what about your routines and the non-negotiables that you have in your daily existence that make sure that you're performing as well as you can as a leader yeah well, i think um you've got to have a routine as a leader um i certainly have developed that over the years i've always had quite a strong work ethic uh so I've always worked long hours, but I've become much more effective in, in working more effective hours. Um, the book that I, I I read and got a lot out of was a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is about understanding when your most profitable periods of the day are. Make sure you do your hardest work there. Make sure you cut off all, all the distractions you have and do your best work. Then, then the other periods are more lighter periods of work. So that's that's really helped me a lot, that book. And I was I was lucky enough to have a Zoom with him over any any aspiring coach or any aspiring leader should read that book. Yeah, he's been on the show about uh, A World Without Email, which is his new book that he is trying to turn people's worlds upside down with. There's one thing actually I wanted to suggest that you might really enjoy. It's a book by Stephen Kotler called The Art of Impossible. Um, so... You think about how someone like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi or uh, Cal Newport, they come at flow from quite a psychological perspective. Yeah. Um, St yeah. Stephen comes at it from a biological perspective. So he looks at the biological prerequisites that cause a human to be in a flow state. Um, and that book, okay. that book's really, really impressive. There's something nice about having someone that's like spitting sawdust uh, around what you need to do in order to prime your body. So it's a primer on peak performance. Um, but given your daily routine, which I know you tend to work on a morning, right? You get up sort of relatively yeah. early and then you crack it out. That aligns, interestingly, that aligns really, really closely with what Stephen talks about. And he's done some of the most advanced flow research on the planet. He owns the Flow Research Collective, which is this big group and blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, it's funny how people that maybe don't know the neurology of why it's happening they just arrive yeah. at an effective strategy simply by trial and error yeah no I'll read that book mate that's a good tip good man good man so talk to me about some of the new additions to your team we've spoken about the fact that we've got women on board and you've touched on there's there's a media person you've got a guy that used to speak to uh psychopaths and stuff and you've got all, all manner of different team members who are some of the, the yeah, interesting well, we, new ones we've uh, we've put on uh we use a forensic psychologist now um and she used to she used to assess psychopaths in in one of the jails in in england and basically to see whether they were going to kill again um and if they were going to kill they had to stay in a high security jail obviously if they they felt if she felt they could move to a more uh less secure or so she tells a story about how she'd sit in this, the, the room, the jail room with these psychopaths having to, having to try to analyse them. So we've got her on um, to work with the coaches. So it's the first time we've had a psychologist for the coaches. And, oh, and so she's not just working. Sorry, she's not just working with the players. You've got her no, working with the coaches to assess their mental state as working, well. She's working with the coaches to, 
to improve our collaborative, um, improve our collaboration as a team, and also to improve our our language and our communication. Just as we spoke about before, just the the power of language now. It's always been important, but I think it's even more important now. So, she has a her name's Nashida the Solhem, and she's written a book called Pin Code. And basically, she's got yeah the approach of how you should prepare for every conversation, your advanced preparation, the way you use your body, and and the way you approach your conversations. Just so important. So she's been she's been fantastic for us. That's intro. I'm going to steal that, and I might ask you for an intro to her once we've, once we're finished yeah. as well. That uh, sounds, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, it's still it's still fascinating me the level of um, intricacy that you're seeing with rugby. I don't know how this compares with other sports, but like I say, I've watched my housemate from a front row seat move through um, the layers of you know a, a top level club, and what one thing that struck me from that is that there are uh, different groups, and I imagine this must be the same in most elite sports, but specifically within rugby, um, you know, he's part of the physio team, but the physio team needs to coordinate with S&C, but S&C also needs to coordinate with coaches, and everybody has yeah. their own uh, priorities, so it feels to me like the physio team are kind of erring on the side of, well, look, we know how long this injury may take to come back. The coach wants the guy to be on the pitch. The S&C person wants to deliver the player to come back on the pitch. So it makes sense that coordination and communication between you guys and really, really getting that right and not causing rifts and politics within that coaching community, even before you even get to the players, it makes a lot of sense that getting that right is is pretty crucial. Uh, it's absolutely crucial, mate. And it's having that holistic approach to the player that there's you can't treat the player for just one thing that everything's connected yeah so their their physical state is is uh connected to their fitness level which is connected to their ability to play the game so we do a lot of case studies some players and get all the all the particular people involved making sure that that the approach we take to the, the player is the right approach. And again, then it comes back to the language of how you approach that. Um, so the language involved in that's just so important. And, and because rugby is a reasonably complex game, um, that's not won by individuals, it's, it's won by a team. And that's why in rugby you don't tend to get huge superstars because it is, it's the ultimate team game. Like a Messi in rugby would be hard to 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 have because because he can't do that without everyone else doing their job because it takes at least eight players to win the ball before it gets delivered to him. There's no Ben um, Ben Stokes on the rugby pitch. No, no, there's not, and and it's difficult difficult for those players to actually survive in the game because it's such a a complicated game. And and our job as a staff is to make it simple. Yeah, we've got to make this complicated game simple for the players because we know the neuro neurology of the brain, if the players are thinking all about this, they can't perform on the field. So our job is to make sure we keep that simple and the communication between all those departments has got to be so uh, concise and, and so much on the same page because you imagine now a player comes into, a new player comes into a team. Yeah, we've got 22 staff members. So they've got now established 22 relationships with 22 staff members. Yeah, that's a hell of a lot of work to do. So if each of the 
the staff members telling them a slightly different thing, then you can imagine how confusion can come into a young player's head. So our ability to make sure that the messages are clear and concise and simple and 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 driving the player to the to the one goal um, is just is just massively important for us. Do you try and restrict the number of people that communicate sort of strategies and tactics to the players in order to reduce that uh, degrees of freedom yeah. as well? Hundred percent, mate. So we uh, we've broken the down broken the team down a little bit like NFL uh, that there's four groups of players each have a a head coach so to speak for that group and we want most of the communication to go through that person yeah particularly when the player is going through a difficult stage we'll try to channel all that information through the right person what about during halftime or you could imagine that this would be any uh, high pressure time sensitive communication opportunity have you got some principles that you go into that with or that you tell the coaches to go into that with are they trying to have one thing that they'd speak about are there some underlying rules yeah no most most two things at the most absolute most you know so those old you know uh, on any given sunday type speeches don't happen anymore mate <laughs> uh, it's one or two points um and we know that the the more stressed the player is which they use the art half time they've got physical stress they might have tactical stress uh that their ability to absorb information is less so we need to keep that information so concise so one or two messages we're trying to get through at the very most Nice. What about when you notice in yourself, is there something that you detect if your balance starts to go off, if you find yourself becoming less effective or just that you're getting, you're straying away from the principles? Is, are there any um, warning signs that you find in yourself when that's happening? Uh, well, I, I've deliberately put another guy on, a guy called Neil Craig, who's, who's an AFL coach. Um, previously in another life as a sports scientist. So he's basically, he's a bit older than me um, and he sits there next to me all the time in everything we do and and keeps giving me feedback about about what I'm doing um, so that if I'm do straying away, if I'm doing too hard or too soft or not talking enough or talking too much, he's giving me that feedback. So every morning we'll have a coffee at half past seven and go through it. And I heard another story from an a Australian friend of mine who coached the, the Boomers at the last uh, Olympics and they won their first medal ever. And he went and visited the Milwaukee Bucks and he said, you know, he had a good good relationship with the head coach so he'd see that he was there for 10 or 12 days. He said there's this little bloke every day running around with his notepad. You know, and, and he, he didn't know what he did because no one spoke to him. He didn't have, no one introduced him that he had a role. Anyway, about the ninth day he's there, he said, who is that little bloke that's writing these things down? And the head coach says to him, he's the most important bloke in this, in this uh, organisation. He says, he writes down everything I do well. He writes down everything I, I don't, don't do well. And at the end of the day, he gives it to me straight. And, and you need someone in the, the organisation to be doing that all the time. Like It's like having a truth teller there, but someone who's, who's not afraid of, of being absolutely honest to make sure that they're picking up things when you're moving away from what you should be doing. It's like an external impartial conscience. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the the situations are so highly charged and emotional, especially when you're getting toward game time, right? We've got the World Cup coming up in less than than two years now. Your ability to judge your own performance and and remember what what you said and what you did is basically zero like you're the yeah. worst you're the worst witness to your own mind but to have yeah. someone there who's on your shoulder what do you call that person is he the coach's coach what is he uh well, we just call him craigie <laughs> <laughs> he, again he doesn't have a he doesn't have a role mate but everyone knows what he does okay and, keeps and, you and, he and keeps you in check because he's cuz he's seen as being neutral he's also acts as a source of uh, that any of the players or the coaches can talk to because he knows nothing about rugby, knows absolutely zero, <laughs> the best way, you know. <laughs> so they have very honest conversations. So he only not only acts as that for me, but he acts it for, for the coaches and some of the senior players as well. What's this story about a samurai sword and a kiwi? <laughs> right. Oh, that was just like, yeah, because the players have so many meetings, we're always trying to come up with novel ways of of reinforcing the theme as we were talking about. So we had, as we said with the New Zealanders, we had that we had that theme, we're chasing it, we're after them, you know, we're after them this week. They're not coming after us, we're going after them. Anyway, I'm a half Japanese, so I always wanted to have a samurai sword. I always thought of myself as a samurai. You know, if I was born 700 years ago, I would have been a samurai. I don't know how many fights I would have lasted. But it, anyway, we're down in Miyazaki, this tiny little coastal town, um, for a week, and I asked the interpreter uh, who'd worked with me for a period of time to go and try to buy me a samurai sword. So she traced around Miyazaki and found this tiny little shop, and only one person could go in the shop. It was that small, and there was this uh, man in there about aged 80, and he'd been collecting these samurai swords. So he had this collection of samurai swords, and the one the one that, that we bought um, was about... 300 years old like we had the papers that said it was a legitimate samurai sword so that was like that was like a childhood dream to have that so i thought now how am i going to use this and i thought well we can't use we can't use it on any of the players uh because it might be a nasty cut so i thought oh well kiwi fruit so the night before i got some kiwi fruit up to my room i was practicing chopping this kiwi fruit up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, we, we've had the team meeting, gone through all the tactical stuff, and I said, boys, this is what's going to take. We've got to, we've got to chase them down the street, we've got to chop them in half and just cut up some kiwi fruit. And it was a bit of fun, you know, everyone's laughing and, and you know, everyone wants to see the samurai sword afterwards. So it was just a way of of, um, of reinforcing the message. I want to see the room service assistant that arrives at your room <laughs> with dinner that night as you've got a samurai sword, this half Japanese man's got a samurai sword in his like shorts and vest, whacking seven shades of shit out of a kiwi on his desk. Yeah, I'd probably get arrested, mate. I wanted to bring the samurai sword back to England, but I think I'd get arrested if I brought it back. Dangerous, <laughs> dangerous weapon. Yeah, I heard you say. Um, I was watching one one of the many uh, Eddie Jones press interviews uh, compilations that exist on YouTube, and you said. I never worry about things I can't control. How do you avoid being swept away in those uncontrollable concerns and stuff like that? How do you notice when you're getting outside of your domain of competence and control? Uh, again, uh, reflection's a big thing. I think yeah, at the end of every day, and I'm not as deliberate as I should be, 
uh, and I go through phases, um, but I'll try to reflect very clearly on the day, what, what I did well, what I didn't do well. I've used like a high performance journal. There's those about, or I use just a li little book like this sometimes, and I'll just write things down and, and I try to be as, as deliberate as I can about reflection each day. And I think, yeah, that's one of the most important skills as a coach you need to have is that ability to reflect uh, record, write it down if you haven't done it well, write it down if you have done it well. Again, that reinforces the message that of what you're not doing well or what you are doing well. So reflection is the most important thing. And that half hour seven coffee with uh, Neil Craig's the other one. Talk to me about dealing with public criticism. Yeah, when you're young, it's hard, mate. It's hard. Uh, when I was a young coach coming through, I felt I felt all the criticism that was that was that was uh, directed towards you when you weren't doing well, and I enjoyed the praise when I was doing well. And probably uh, coming to coming to England really helped me. Um, I remember one of the first lunches I had was with Sir Alex Ferguson. I was lucky enough to meet him, and he said, "Mate, don't read any of it. Stop reading it." And from that day onwards, I haven't read it, so I really don't know. I don't take, I don't, don't read it at all. My wife might mention something, or my mum. I, my mum's ninety six, lives in Australia, and she reads every newspaper. So she said, "They said this about your mum. I don't care. I don't want to know." Um, so I just don't take any, any, uh, any of it in at heart at all. So I don't even read it. So I don't even know. So and ig that's ignorance that's is your solution. Yeah. I, yeah, I think otherwise, it's so, I think it's so hard that you know, I heard I heard a play the other day. I was watching a documentary actually on Australian swimming, and the the guy was saying he was a hundred meter sprinter, and he said, you know, he reads social media. And he says there's seven hundred good comments, and then there's one bad comment, and he says that one bad comment sticks with him, and he wants to ring that person up and ask him why does he say that. And and I think in 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 sport, if you have that sort of attitude, it's it's very difficult because you're wasting time. You're wasting time on that one negative comment um, that used to be written on the toilet wall. You know, you walk in the toilet and someone and say someone had written on the wall, so and so is the so and so, and all this sort of thing. And you know, because you'd only be in there for the toilet, you you'd see it and you'd go out. But now, you know, players have. To Players and coaches have to live with this, and then it becomes a, a a storm. And if you if you try to try to at all rationalise why people try to do that, all you're doing is wasting time. How do you help the boys deal with pressure? You know, we've got this big World Cup coming up. There is some expectation after a, a run of good form recently. How are the especially the younger lads that maybe don't have Joe Marler's five uh, attempted retirements and all of his <laughs> all of his experience? How how do you help them deal with that pressure? Well, we want them to see it as a privilege, like it's a privilege of being part of a good team. That you're that you that the pressure's there, and the external pressure is no greater than the pre, the the expectation that's within the team and the expectation that's within the individual. And one one of the things we've started doing with the players is coming up with a concept of a trademark game. That we believe that yeah, a trademark game is a game where you play at the absolute minimum you have to play, but you play with absolute effort and absolute control. 
Now, we reckon if, if we have 75% of our players playing at that, because that's hard, that's hard to do. If we have 75% of our players playing at that, then we'll win, we'll win most games. So we want the players to concentrate on their effort and what they can control rather than things they can't control. So it's, again, getting back to what can you control in your performance. Control that. You can control your effort. You can control if you can control your emotion. You have to work on that. So they're practicing that trademark game each week, trying to trying to get brilliant at that trademark game. And if they can do that, then the then the better games will automatically come for them. So they don't have to aspire to be brilliant every week because that's where I think the pressure comes from. Oh, so you are allowing a release valve. You've got a realistic view of their performance that it is going to fluctuate from. The, uh, the absolute perfect to sometimes below yeah. that and to say, look, yeah. it, it's okay. It's okay as long as you're playing with effort and control. Like there's a young player that we've, we, we just brought in. I won't mention his name. Um, but he's, he came in on the back of some brilliance at club level. Came in and played for England, had a couple of games and he was brilliant, did some brilliant things. And now he keeps chasing that brilliance. And rather than just chasing, play, play, play hard, play, control your emotions, and that will come sometimes. Other times it won't come. That you can play really well and you can maybe not score goals, but you can play really well for your team and help your team win. But because there's an expectation of you scoring goals and then if you try to score goals, you're creating further pressure on yourself rather than just play hard for the team. Like be the best player you can for the team, control your emotions, control what you can control, and and ultimately those better performances will come. That's such a really interesting way to look at things, to avoid aiming for brilliance every single time, especially when it's not just you. You know, you could maybe argue in a sport like powerlifting where your opponent is the bar and it's gravity the uh, yeah. how would you say the degrees of freedom have been constrained, right? There's no there's no opponent trying to punch you in the face. Yeah. Let's say in in boxing or in in sometimes in rugby, yeah. and with that having a having an approach of look, your best ever game isn't the standard that you now need to try and beat. That's just where you can get to, and what did you do that got you there? And we continue to try and iterate on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the best example in rugby recently has been Dan Carter. Uh, who most of his games he was very solid and then occasionally do one or two brilliant things. But people would harp on about the brilliant things. But it was actually his brilliance was his solidarity. And that's you look at most team sports, that's what it's about. It's about being solid, working hard. Then all of a sudden you get the one opportunity and if you're in the right place and at the right time, you get that opportunity to do something brilliant. In England, it seems like rugby is still a, private school dominated sports how important do you think it is to have players like Ellis Genge who are sort of showing that whatever normal guys can make it to the international level uh, very important mate because again you know diversity is important going forward um, and so we're so pleased we've got guys like Genge guys like Sinclair have come through they're not out of not out of the pathway, so to speak. They've they've fought their way through. Got you know, I've had previously guys like Mark Wilson who went back to university to study. Yeah, those sort of players are really important for us. Amazing, Eddie Jones, ladies and gentlemen. Where should people go if they want to find out more about the book? 
Uh, well, Macmillan, Macmillan publishes them, and I'm sure they'll be at most bookstores, mate. It'll be linked in the show notes below. Eddie, everyone will be behind you over the next couple of years. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the outcomes of all of this, these new psychologists and the person that's looked at psychopaths and the guy that's on your shoulder telling you when you're getting it wrong. I, um, I really love to see people take the minutiae and the fine-tuned, fine-grained stuff right up to 11. We saw this with Team Sky in the racing, right? You know, we saw what happens when you really take a granule of you and then you deploy that to a to a team in a way that makes sense. So, yeah, man, I'm uh, I'm confident going into 2023. All the best luck. Uh, good on you, mate. I really enjoyed chatting to you. I enjoyed your questions. So all the best, mate. <laughs>